Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome back to another exciting and a riveting episode of Anesthesia Alchemy. Gary and Terry Unplugged. I'm Terry Wicks, and of course, right beside me is my co-host, the esteemed and effervescent Gary Bridges, a guy with more letters after his name than the English alphabet. And today we're going to closely examine a phenomenon that's growing in frequency and importance and is really getting more and more attention in the anesthesia community, as it should and that's post-operative delirium. As our population ages and more and more elderly people are having surgery for more and more procedures, we're concerned about post-op delirium and its complications, and long-term implications have become more and more critical. So hang on to your scrub caps, ladies and gentlemen, as Gary and I explore post-operative delirium, its antecedents, consequences, and how to reduce its incidence. Gary, how are you doing today, buddy? Well, Terry, I'm having a great day today. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Uh, but you know, you're so right. You know, while awareness of the incidence of post-operative delirium is increasing among anesthesia providers, including mitigation strategies, the frequency of delirium in surgical patients remains high, as we all know and are starting to see. You know, and it has a significant long-term implication for patient morbidity and mortality. You know, Terry and I are members of this club, the American Geriatric <laughs> Society, <laughs> who published an update of guidelines Whoa. in 2023. <laughs> uh, we, we've been know, grandfathered in. That, that's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and they identified potentially inappropriate medications for older adults, while these recommendations address things like anticoagulants, sodium glucose co-transporter agents, and antibiotics, and, and others, as we'll, we'll describe today. Uh, we're going to focus our discussion, though, mainly on the medications on the direct central nervous system effects that may provoke post-operative delirium, which is a real problem today and growing. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny because I think back, uh, and you probably heard this, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when we were in in the middle part of our anesthesia career, we, we would 
put some elderly person to sleep or for a total hip or a gallbladder and they'd go home and the family go, you know, Bob didn't wake up for three weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was probably some truth to that. Yeah. So, you know, here in contemporary anesthesia with the aging population, we've got a lot of work to do uh, today, Gary. And, you know, some of the questions that we're going to try to answer are, you know, what are the factors that increase the patient's risk of experiencing postoperative delirium? You know, are there some screening tools out there that will help us predict when postoperative delirium might occur? You know, are there reasons to measure postoperative delirium? And of course, and maybe even most importantly, you know, what are the strategies that anesthesia providers can implement to reduce the risk of postoperative delirium and all the consequences that go along with that? Well, that's interesting, Terry. You know, you're getting up there in the years. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what delirium looks like? What? <laughs> Uh, you know, its most salient features might be, and maybe what we can anticipate patients who are experiencing delirium might be in the present. Well, thank you for noticing that, Gary. You know, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I was lecturing and I was talking to students about a topic which was near and dear to my heart. And I was trying to describe the term. And I said, well, you know, it's like, when you're a little uncertain of where you are and you're having trouble articulating and communicating and, and formulating your thoughts. And one of the students goes, you mean delirium, Dr. Wicks? And I go, yeah, like I'm having right now. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I'm no spring chicken anymore, Gary. And, and sometimes I do feel like I'm losing track of things. And they, even though people say, oh, that's normal for everybody, you know, it kind of stings a little bit when it's you. But there are some things that sort of characterize what delirium is and you know, how it presents itself. And it mostly occurs in geriatric patients. That's no surprise. And it's characterized by acute alterations in mental status that affect cognition and attention and can even cause fluctuating levels of consciousness and impair executive function. So, you know, those are, those are a big deal to a patient's recovering from surgery. And patients who have experienced delirium say they do have a loss of sense of identity and control and maybe even have a distorted sense of time. So patients say they, they feel fatigued and they're depressed, they have a sense of isolation. And having said all that, you know, we have to be aware that these presentations, they vary just a little bit. And patients can be a little hyperactive, maybe even hypoactive, and maybe have a mixed presentation. And you know what? That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> Not at all. So, so Gary, you know, you've, you've done a little research on this. How often does this crazy stuff happen? <laughs> well, you know, let me, let me tell you a story first. You know, back in the day, uh, this was somewhere in the uh, mid to late 1990s. I was uh, running a cardiovascular IC unit down in South Texas. And um, I remember coming on the shift, making assignments, and, and one of my buddies, I gave, uh, you know, this, this fresh heart um, that wasn't doing too well. We were, you know, these were the days that, uh, you know, like we call it today, enhanced recovery after surgery. Back in the cardiac days, it was fast track, right? Yeah, baby. <laughs> keep them moving. Let's keep them moving. Roll them through. As the cash register just keeps ching ching ching, especially down there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you know, we go ahead, we start fast tracking this patient, and as we're weaning stuff down, and I noticed, you know, it's about eleven o'clock at night. You know, lights go down, and we're kind of we watch the tele monitors and and try to let people get their their rest. And usually, when we start our bed baths, or the unit starts the bed baths, you know, and once that's done, we start pulling the chest tubes, the balloon pumps, and all that stuff. Well, it was about eleven o'clock. And I told my buddy Jeff, and I said, hey, Jeff, um, I don't know if there's a ghost in your patient's room 
or if he's moving around. <laughs> so Jeff goes on. He's like, what the hell? So he goes, turns on the light, and here the guy's covers are on the ground, and he's trying to pull his chest tubes out. And so we were both like a tag team in the World uh, Wrestling Federation. I was Jimmy Snooker, Superfly, jumping <laughs> off the tightrope over the guy's chest. And the guy was completely disoriented out of it. He was pulling chest tubes out. Ended up, he, he actually um, uh, pulled some of his sternal wires apart. So we had to go back Ooh. to surgery. And yeah, it's, uh, and so this guy comes, comes back to the unit after surgery. He was totally out of it for almost six weeks. This is an attorney, wow. high-powered attorney in wow. South, South Texas. So even in the 90s, it was pretty common. And, and we would see it, you know, we were thinking, oh, they got pump head, right? You know, we'll put them on the bypass unit, and maybe it's all the Tiny particles. bubbles. Little <laughs> bubbles and little, you know, whatever, prions and whatnot. So, you know, unfortunately, Terry, you know, this happens in almost 2 million older adults every single year in the United States. You know, some studies even suggest that it happens between 10 and 50% of the time and these old folks go to surgery. And delirium seems to happen a lot after spine surgery and then up to about 61% after orthopedic surgery. So it's, it's uh, not unique, you know, to any type of surgery. And so cardiac surgery, obviously, as I've described, stands out too. And it's about 50% of cardiac surgical patients that do experience some form of, of postoperative delirium. You know, and to make matters even worse, admissions to the ICU um, intensive care units, you know, we know that's a really quiet place, right? When you transport those patients in there and take care of them. <laughs> it's like being downtown. <laughs> that's, yeah, in Vegas, uh, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, <laughs> I feel like this <laughs> slot machines. Can you please collect? Because we know you won. <laughs> we don't need to hear it all night long. Yeah. Uh, but, you know. Wow into the ICU especially uh, increases the risk even more. And some studies even suggest up to 80% of patients admitted to the ICU will experience some form of delirium at some point during their ICU admission. And, and it actually doesn't even stop there. They can actually develop it even after discharge. You know, interesting wow. though, you know, some authorities suggest as many as one third to a half of all cases of delirium can be prevented which is you know, interesting. You, you remind me, uh, you remind me of a story, uh, a buddy of mine uh, that I worked with at Catawba Valley Medical Center in Hickory, his dad um, had bilateral knee replacements. And uh, Ed, you know, he was a vibrant guy. He played golf. He ran a business. He was a, you know, a World War II vet. He put yeah. four people through college, the whole nine yards. And you know, he was uh, in the step-down unit afterwards, and he'd been a little bit out of his gourd for a few days and said to his son, uh, "Yeah, you know, I think they're trying to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you can see that guy over there in the corner, can't you? And, you know, so, you know, Ed was hallucinating. And, you know, it's just, it's really terrible. Yeah, I mean, nobody, um, nobody's spared. I mean, it, these are sharp, oh, no. sharp people that experience Correct. it. Correct, yeah. 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 And, and eventually, you know, and eventually this gentleman recovered and, uh, you know, was out playing golf off again uh, for a long time with his D replacements. But it just goes to show, you know, for spending time in the ICU for, because of delirium or a step-down unit, it really jacks up the cost of healthcare. Oh, oh, and and right. when a patient has delirium, you know, their length of stay gets stretched out. And, you know, one estimate was that an episode of delirium for an elderly person increases the hospitalization cost by up to $65,000 yeah. every episode. Yeah. And so when you start multiplying, like you said, 2 million episodes 
of delirium a year times 60 to 65 grand. We're talking about $12 billion Big B. added to the price. Yeah, with a B. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and even to CRNAs, that starts to look like a lot of money. That's what... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could buy a couple of them Model S Teslas for that. Oh, geez, yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> and, you know, so when someone has delirium, you know, they're not only is it you're going to stay in the hospital longer, cost a lot more money, but they're going to maybe wind up in a long-term care facility instead of going home. And that's that's really a tragedy. Uh, so, uh, again, readmission rates go up for folks that have had delirium. And, uh, you know, the long-term consequences that, you know, really concerned about is possibility of functional de decline, you know, loss of the ability to manage ADLs, which is a marker for mortality and morbidity. Uh, and even, even for folks that lose one of the, you know, the classic ADLs, uh, paying your bills, cooking, bathing, doing your laundry. Uh, even one of those uh, going by the wayside increases a person's one-year mortality and morbidity risk. So it's a big deal. So again, for folks that get post-operative delirium, it's a pretty strong indicator. You're leaning towards some permanent cognitive impairment, delayed cognitive recovery, and maybe even some pers persistent neurocognitive disorders. It's really it's you know it's a baseball bat to the knees oh it's absolutely it's kind of, like getting hijacked it's crazy attention all certified nurse anesthetists are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option well look no further than crnaeducation.com we are an NBCRNA-recognized provider, offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior-approved Class A CE credits, with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well, with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile-friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Well, you know, let me let me talk a little bit more about the cardiac stuff, Terry. You know, there's a lot of folks yeah. in our country that are having cardiac surgery. Uh, techniques are getting more innovative. You know, coronary bypass is revolutionizing. And cardiac surgery patients, you know, they seem to have at least that we're aware of the highest incidence of, of delirium to date. You know, patients say that they experience feelings of isolation. They sometimes avoid future healthcare engagements just because of it. And they're going to suffer from poor mental health uh, in the long term. And it's not uncommon for cardiac patients to be admitted, obviously, to the ICU for a period of time while they're recovering. And, you know, another component of that is the ICU delirium, especially at nighttime. Oh, my God. Those of us that yeah. have been in the ICU, we've seen that. 
And we used to coin it sundowners. And uh, yeah, <laughs> which just sounds romantic, but it's not. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I, I didn't get these pipes for no reason because <laughs> they work you out. <laughs> yeah, baby. But you know, delirium is also associated with a higher risk of death at three to six months after admission to the ICU. You know, so wow. in both medical and surgical patients who experience hypoactive delirium. Uh, you know, there is a threefold increase in the risk of death to uh, the following day, which is really, really wow. stunning, right? That's a bad sign. Absolutely. Wow. You know, now, Hughes and his colleagues back in 2021 did not find an increase in the risk of death persisting to delirium patients who survived uh, to discharge. So I guess in some ways <laughs> that might be good yeah. news. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the population is aging. So, you know, we got the silver broke, broke through the barrier, <laughs> got home. Absolutely. And we're not at the crest yet of the wow. silver tsunami. Maybe. So, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, what they're really saying is that if you do experience some form of delirium and you live through it, well, maybe after a year, you might probably at a reduced risk of death than someone who didn't experience a del- delirium. I'm not really sure, but, you know, to me, it seems like it's kind of a hollow reassurance because uh, wow. we, we are seeing it, uh, and it is growing, and uh, and it's it's mirroring the uh, you know aging population. It's interestingly too, when we look at that segment of the population that's growing the quickest, that is those that are the age of eighty five or over, which is interesting factoid, right? Yeah. So, so we can anticipate this to to explode yeah. in the next coming years. Well, yeah, it's interesting. When I was A and A president, and uh, some people out there may remember that it's been a while. <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite a while. You know, the people that were in my age cohort, early fifties, that was the big bubble of the CRNA population. So, mm. you know, you may see a little delirium at the anesthesia meetings <laughs> coming up. Uh, not, I'm not saying not may for sure, you but, will. <laughs> you will, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, see, so yeah, getting older seems to be a risk. So, hey, let's talk a little bit about patient characteristics that maybe, maybe uh, you know, open a window of vulnerability for patients. And so, uh, you know, we've already said delirium seems to happen more often with older folks, especially after the age of 60 to 65, which whew, it kind of hits close to home. Uh, as, as one of my students said, why are you still working? I don't know. Who knows? Anyway. So our population here in the United States and worldwide is growing older all the time. So it makes you wonder, and we've said this, that we're going to see more and more delirium as time goes on. So we're going to have to wait and see, obviously, but I'm a little concerned with with good reasons. So we really need to pay attention. But there are some other factors that seem to, to be at play that increase the patient's risk of, of delirium above and beyond just getting old. One of them, uh, not surprisingly, is if the patient has previously experienced delirium. I, and that really shouldn't surprise us, I guess. But, you know, uh, a history of pre-existing cognitive impairment seems to be important. Things like just generalized poor health, hypertension, and we'll dig into some of that. So let's go ahead and we're going to throw that out on the table. Hypertension, COPD, diabetes. Yeah, I imagine both type 1 and type 2 and chronic kidney disease. And all of these things are really just markers of poor health. Uh, But they do seem to be a setup for uh, a person having some delirium. Yeah, Terry, there's no doubt that these comorbidities really do make a difference uh, in predicting. um, uh, Actually, uh, I didn't pull up the study, but um, there is a study using machine learning and artificial intelligence, actually, that's got prediction measures with postoperative cognitive dysfunction. So that was published in 2023. I'd have to look up the 
the authors slipped my mind, but they do demonstrate uh, that this is a growing problem, and it's certainly things like ischemic heart disease, low albumin, so, you know, that cachectic patient, even mm. preoperative anemia is another big one, um, and it is a big deal, and it's preoperative anemia, believe it or not, and, you know, this is what some of my um, AI and machine learning stuff that I do in quality, it is pointing to a lot of bad outcomes um, postoperatively, so question is, is what do we do with that do we top them up or yeah. you know i'm not sure but we're gonna we're gonna yeah. see that transfusions there's that's not a free ride that's, either. no there's not at all goes with that yeah yeah you know and of course uh we don't want to overlook smoking um that's a big problem and i guess we could throw vaping in there too right yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and maybe even some of the herb classifications there that are smokables that's <laughs> uh, blossoming all over the country all over the country yeah they're just including in washington to... <laughs> dc which may not be a bad thing <laughs> there's definitely no upside to to smoking yeah. uh period yeah, you know that's but for sure <laughs> now Again, like I said, we don't know if vaping contributes to the delirium because we just don't know much on historical data yet. Um, but yeah. we are sure uh, now that vaping is not good for the lungs, maybe even worse than cigarettes. In fact, a lot of those vaping compounds are made from oils, which um, I guess is one of the methods of how they get the... You can see all the vapors coming out when somebody's vaping in a car, right? You're like, the hell is this Cheech and Chong rewritten? I, I, I. For those younger ones out there, you'll have to Google Cheech and Chong and watch a few YouTubes. Cause... Oh, no, they're making gummies now. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, nonetheless... Um, yeah. You know, we do know that it is getting worse uh, probably than cigarettes. It's actually creating some form of ARDS or adult respiratory distress syndrome. But yeah. like you said, Terry, uh, preoperative cognitive impairment is also a big deal as well as dementia, sepsis, heart failure, obstructive sleep apnea, malnutrition. Wow. I mean, the list just goes on. And, and these people just dodge a lot of those bullets, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, some of them, but... You know, I think the buck's going to stop at some point. Yeah. You know, and you just made me think of something. You know, one of my students did her DNP project on implementing strategies to limit the administration of drugs that are associated with increased risk of delirium uh, to surgical patients at one of our, you know, bigger hospitals here um, in the urban community around UNCG. And, and in her literature search, she discovered that there's the markers of inflammation. Now we're finding out inflammation is another one of those really bad things yep. uh, that goes on. And, and uh, she was looking at articles that discuss cytokines, which are small signaling proteins that bind to cell surfaces and, you know, modulate just tons of different stuff, but in immune responses and uh, cause the cells to react to things like inflammation and trauma and sepsis and, and even cancer. And, and they're associated with the increased risk of postoperative delirium and particularly uh, elevated levels of, a, of one of those cytokines called interleukin-6, are associated with the increased risk of postoperative delirium. And, you know, we're just finding out or maybe beginning to appreciate all of the different cytokines, the interleukins and tumor necrosing factor and all of those things that really uh, have an implication for health that I think we largely didn't appreciate in the past. Again, uh, another uh, source of a problem is frailty, which is just like a generalized lack of resilience and that seems to also to increase the risk of delirium so it sure seems like all these things get tied together and inflammation which commonly occurs in hypertension and heart disease and 
cancer you know seemed to be a particularly bad thing and um, she also found that postoperatively when, when uh, patients have elevated levels of interleukin 10 another one of those markers of inflammation that seems to be a signal of an increased risk of delirium as well so you know as you mentioned cardiac surgery patients it seems like there are biochemical markers of oxidative neuronal injury you know and so i guess that's why they say when you're under a lot of stress you ought to eat a lot of blueberries. <laughs> Makes your fingers blue, but uh, you know they, the you know, and and propofol kind of scavenges oxidative free radicals. But uh, um, you know, there's a limit to how much time you can spend sedated with uh, <laughs> propofol, and well, I don't know, well, we can go on and on about that. But anyway, you know, some of those oxidative processes damage the blood-brain barrier and open up uh, another avenue for insult, particularly after cardiac surgery uh, may even double the risk of developing postoperative delirium. So we've got really got to keep an eye on, and there's all kinds of new stuff coming out that we're finding things that were flying below the radar that are probably a big deal. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Terry. You know, and I'm reminded of, of, uh, of an episode uh, by Peter Atia, who's I think a cardiologist by profession, but into longevity. And he has a podcast called the drive podcast God, I hate rehashing COVID, but he had a really interesting <laughs> podcast on this whole cytokine storm with one of the PhD scientists and cognition. And one of the predictions, and so from this cytokine storm in conjunction with the virus, it creates these little um, pits in the uh, cerebral vasculature. And so it is hypothesized, at least, that we get these slow bleeds over time. And those that have a significant, now whatever significant cytokine storm is, I don't know what those numbers look like. But to your point, interleukin-6, interleukin-12, interleukin-10, all these types of uh, biotissues that are released by the body in response to uh, inflammation. So the prediction is early onset dementia and early onset Alzheimer's. So the brain is a complicated place. And, you know, it's, uh, kind, of, it's yeah. kind of interesting that, you know, thalamic volume may be important too. And, and, you know, when researchers measured thalamic volume by MRI, they found a lot of low thalamic volume seems to be a risk factor for experiencing delirium. So this part of the brain, which is responsible for switching consciousness on and off, seems particularly susceptible to reduction in blood flow and increasing the risk of delirium. So anything that would hurt our brains, taking drugs, drinking alcohol to excess, uh-oh, that's Whoa. not good. <laughs> Oops. Um, okay. Uh, you know, well, you know, experiencing disabilities or having limited cognitive reserve, depression, frailty, even institutionalized living, uh, definitely is a contributor uh, and increases the risk of having delirium. And, and, you know, interestingly today, so as you know, I do a lot of neuroanesthesia for skull-based cases and, and particularly complicated case today. And removing tumor off of the medulla, the cerebellum, and, and where the cranial nerves are coming out of the medulla and uh, this tumor was enshrined around uh, a couple of those nerves. And so one of my responsibilities is watching EEG as they're scraping the capsule off of the, the nerves and the, and the brain stem. And, and I will tell you, that is a delicate center because when you fiddle with or touch that brain stem or the nerves, oh, they get ugly. 
My God, the monitor. It sounds like a Star Wars movie in the room, and 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 I'm trying to like suppress it with everything I got. And you know, I look over to the surgeon, and I, you know, I feel like I'm Star Trek. I said, I'm giving her all I got, Scotty. She can't take much more. Can't take much more. Oh man! Oh man! Oh yeah! Gosh. Well, shoot. Maybe I should have been more careful back in the seventies. Oh man! Oh, uh, some of these good times. They, they, they kind of get out of control. So hey, let's look at some of the other precipitating factors that uh, are happening around the operating room <laughs> besides surgeons. I think that's tumor. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe this will give us some insights into voice. That's terrible. What am I doing? Uh, into you know how how can we help our patients avoid delirium? I mean that's really what we want to do. Um, and one of the things that we do have good control over is blood pressure and yeah. particularly mean arterial pressure see, under 55 seem to be a big deal, uh, particularly. And there seems to be, you know, uh, not only just the magnitude of hypotension, if you will, but for how long it lasts. And, was, and the longer hypotension as, lasts, uh, it seems like it just continually increases the odds of the patient developing delirium. So maybe uh, maybe that's related to, you know, decreased cerebral perfusion pressure. I think that's a reasonable assumption. So we already know that hypotension increases risk of, you know, cardiac disease or, you know, an MI, um, post-operative stroke and and probably even has a role in developing acute kidney injury after surgery. So it doesn't look like uh, in combination that hypotension does your brain any good uh, mm -hmm. under any circumstances, of course. And, and there's a lot of problems to go along with poor glycemic control as well. And so we need to keep an eye on blood sugars. One thing that's a little puzzling, though, is, you know, whether the depth of anesthesia itself or even burst suppression is harmful. I mean, it's, it's really hard to know. Um, the data is kind of contradictory. Uh, no doubt that complex surgeries that last a long time increase the risk of delirium, that's for sure, uh, particularly when you get out past three hours. And uh, a lot of studies don't include cardiac surgery patients. So when you're looking at Looking at the data, you'll see studies that are particular to cardiac surgery patients, and then they'll be particular to non-cardiac surgery patients. So um, there does seem to be a relationship between being on cardiopulmonary bypass, acute inflammation, which goes along with that, anesthesia exposure, artificial circulation. I don't know if anybody's looked at whether it's continuous flow or, or pulsatile right. flow is yeah. better or worse or even transfusions, which are related to inflammation and can also be uh, related to delirium. So, well, there's a lot of stuff going on there. I can't, can't overlook those pesky microemboli, <laughs> tiny bubbles, uh, throwing a wrench in the work. So a lot going on that, uh, you know, we, we still need to find out, you know, where we can have the, the most important role in, in helping patients avoid delirium. Yeah, Terry, you're absolutely right. And some of these uh, intraoperative problems can even extend into the postoperative period as well as continue to cause more challenges uh, in that realm of the, of the perioperative period. You know, some studies have actually shown that both intraoperative and postoperative hypotension in the ICU uh, is associated with increased risk of delirium, particularly in the first five days postoperatively. You know, and as you allude to, uh, anemia, atrial fibrillation, pain, uh, they're not our good friends either. You know, they can also cause an increased risk of delirium, as do, as we're seeing everything about sleep health now, sleep disturbances are a major, we know that for a fact now. Yeah. Uh, major sure. contributor, right? Uh, and, you know, it looks like keeping people uncomfortable, you know, making sure that they 
you know, have good perfusion and are getting a good night's sleep are pretty important for dodging the delirium bullet, if you will. You know, all yeah. good things for the brain health as, as best we can. We are, you know, despite scratching the surface, we are learning a little bit more in that in that realm of brain health. And, and there is a major focus on it uh, in the perioperative um, domain, if you will. Maybe even more important than taking brain supplements, you know, but don't get me started on that. Uh, but Terry, <laughs> yeah. you and I both know that an intensive care unit can be, a no, as we've alluded to, you know, the Vegas of, uh, of healthcare. Um, people are winning <laughs> slot machines constantly in those units, right? Boy, yeah. <laughs> but they don't seem to be There's collecting no... the change. Somebody else is collecting that change. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> and it ain't There's the nurses. No prize. <laughs> oh boy. Oh yeah. You know, and it's 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 for it's twenty four seven. I always I'm, I I chuckle when the when the new graduate nurse goes in and and um, gives a sleeping patient the sedative <laughs> that's asleep. Yes. Wake up, Mister Wicks. It's time for your sleeping pill. <laughs> <laughs> and your Nereva and your Prevagen. <laughs> oh, God, oh, yeah. But they also can increase the risk of delirium, as we've noted. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah, you know. <clears throat> but, you know, infections, inflammation, sepsis, even hypoxemia are common companions in the ICU. <laughs> I can't stop laughing because I remember so many times re-educating the nurses. Do you understand what PRN means? <laughs> Assess <What>? first. <laughs> oh, no, but I have to give it on schedule. It says Q six oh hours. God. Yes, not while they're sleeping, please. Yeah, yeah he, he needs he needs his 10 milligrams of Valium. That's right. Which, by yeah. the way, has a half-life in hours equal to his aging That's years. right. <laughs> Let's just see him do a swan dive over the, over the railings. Yes, thank right. you. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know, oh, even, gosh. even things yeah. like hypoxemia, in addition to sepsis, they're, they're common companions, obviously, in the ICU, you know. And we, we know inflammation is, is harmful on so many levels in our body, and, and certainly the brain is not spared. Even though some patients clearly do need to have mechanical ventilation support after surgery, that even seems to be associated with some form of increased risk of delirium. Oh yeah, I so yeah. The ICU is a is he, well. I mean, they're trying to take care. It's like a dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> if you're uh, not crazy when you go there, well, anyway. So you know, we're going to come back to this issue when we finish up. We're gonna we've got some recommendations for uh, ICU care, and we'll get to that before we finish up. But let's talk a little bit about some of the harmful medications um, you know people can be exposed to that cause a lot of problems and the American Geriatric Society uh, really has done a good job of kind of parsing these out so and there's a bunch of them uh, things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, increase the risk of acute kidney injuries and of course GI bleeding and hypertension all go along with that uh, and benzodiazepines, which are great for relieving anxiety, can really be a problem uh, for folks, especially when they're given intraoperatively. Now, there's a little bit of a controversy there because, you know, one study showed a small dose of, of uh, midazolam preoperatively didn't seem to be a problem, but but more so in, in the uh, intraoperative period, they seem to be a problem uh, in terms of uh, leading to increased risk of getting delirium. So we got to con consider that. Uh, and other central nervous system uh, drugs can really be a problem. And anticholinergics, which upset the 
balance of norepinephrine and acetylcholine in the brain, uh, drugs like scopolamine, promethazine, prochlorperazine, diphenhydramine, hydroxazine, <laughs> tricyclic antidepressants, a whole list of Ooh. medications that can scramble an older person's brain. And I have to, I have to confess, I had a little bit of a sniffy nose one time when I was in CRNA in the army and took one of my son's 25 milligram hydroxyzine allergy pills. I was on the couch for the, the whole day, almost missed the Broncos football <laughs> game. It just, it just whacked me out. So hydroxyzine is cool. You know, it's an antihistamine and histamine is, you know, one of those alertness uh, neurochemicals that they're important. Um, and so some of the drugs too, that are given to patients to treat dementia can get folks into trouble. Drugs like gabapentin, which are, are used in chronic pain, uh, can cause sedation and over sedation. So that should be avoided. Um, you know, and we don't give meperidine in the operating room much anymore because some of its metabolites uh, can irritate the brain and, and can be a problem, particularly folks that have impaired kidney function. Those metabolites can really accumulate because they're renally excreted and can cause some neurotoxicity. So there's a, um, a whole bunch of those kinds of things to be aware of, including long acting analgesics, um, you know, morphine, uh, you know, last forever has a really potent uh, first stage metabolite that's maybe even more potent than the parent compound and mm. things like lopidem and steroids and histamines and block histamine can cause over sedation. So, wow. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff to worry about. So, you know, histamine is so important along with norepinephrine for uh, maintaining wakefulness and things that we do to interfere with that really are a problem. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Yeah, so Terry, let's, let's kind of pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about risk mitigation strategies that you know, could be put in place to reduce perhaps the risk of, of delirium. You know, first steps to avoiding perioperative delirium really do begin before the patient actually ever goes to the operating room. You know, there's yeah. sound reasoning to screen patients preoperatively to potentially identify some of those that are most risks for developing delirium. You know, there are some, some risk scales that uh, are available that we probably should think about incorporating into our preoperative evaluations. Um, you know, and those tools, which are reasonably accurate, identifying patients are at risk of delirium. We have a couple of references by Whitlock from 2020 and Kim from 2020, and they give us a good starting point. Even a simple test like the mini-cog, the day of surgery, can reveal an increased delirium risk. And, you know, we'll, we'll put a link in the references for you that you can click on and, and perhaps incorporate. It's certainly something that's growing uh, in concern and, and maybe a good time to maybe start incorporating into your practice. Now, some researchers believe that EEG screening properties can identify some EEG signatures. For example, decreased EEG preoperatively and intraoperatively may even suggest increased risk of birth suppression under general anesthesia and potentially uh, delirium as, as a result. You know, although we appreciate it may be difficult to screen every patient that we might be suspicious of uh, being at risk for increasing delirium. But in any event, you know, it's probably not a bad idea if we do identify those patients at high risk for 
uh, post-operative delirium and share with them our assessment of their risk. You know, Terry, you've got a short uh, list of, you know, things organizations should do, right? Right, Gary, I surely do. And this stuff's not complicated. There's a, a variety of things that organizations can do that don't necessarily involve, you know, changing a patient's medications or even, you know, dramatically altering the anesthesia care plan. So, you know, for example, uh, just reviewing a patient's medications preoperatively and discontinuing those that increase their risk of uh, delirium, that's when it's appropriate. So that's not too complicated. Um, and, and an important step is making a plan for postoperative pain management that reduces the implement, implementation or administration of opioids. So we've got so many other medications for pain that we could administer that that really limit opioid exposure, whether we're talking about dexmethetomidine, IV Tylenol, or acetaminophen. And, and although, you know, there's a little bit of controversy about steroids and, and NSAIDs, but, you know, certainly long-acting opioids are, you should be avoided. And again, you know, making sure that patients are able to get some sleep post-operatively. You know, we, we joke about the ICU being a noisy place, but even the surgical floor can be a little bit busy in the nighttime uh, with, with um, you know, high acuity patients and, and crowded floors. You know, and this seems, seems like common sense, but, you know, sometimes it gets overlooked is giving patients their, their glasses and their hearing aids back just as soon as they can use them safely. I mean, that totally makes sense. And, um, you know, I think what we've seen happen in healthcare over the past couple of decades is, you know, reduction in use or eliminating these restraints. That's probably a good idea, mm -hmm. you know, and get folks oriented to time, place, and location. So again, none of this stuff is complicated. Um, you know, I remember when I had surgery six or seven years ago, so as soon as they fed me at six o'clock, I was out of bed walking around, uh, which was kind of, you know, fun to show everybody in the hospital my open gown in the back. That was kind of cool. And so, yeah, <laughs> feed these patients, keep them hydrated. Um, and being high, dehydrated is never good for anybody, but especially bad for elderly, fo elderly folks. Now, Gary, I think you were going to tell us a little bit about these beers criteria that the American Geriatric Society uh, conjured up for us. And they talk a little bit about some medications that we should avoid to help keep patients healthy and get the doggone things out of the hospital ASAP. <laughs> yes, sir. You are so right. You know, the beers criteria was created by the American Geriatric Society, uh, member 101. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was yours, Terry? 102. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but they provide us uh, guidelines for limiting the exposure of patients who are at risk for delirium. And the most recent update was published in 2023. And, you know, we have the link again uh, to that criteria in the references. Now, you know, the beers criteria aren't limited to medications affecting the central nervous system, but the criteria do also include anticoagulants, uh, antibiotics, and a whole laundry list of other medications, which are potentially harmful for the elderly community. But for our purposes, specifically avoiding antipsychotropic drugs, excessive sedatives, analgesic steroids, statins, and other miscellaneous agents, like perhaps even ketamine, can certainly reduce the risk of delirium in older patients. You know, a little bit of a controversy is is the use of the biz monitor. You know, a lot of clinicians out there are using it. I know some people don't put much stock in biz monitors. Other people are, are you know, devoted uh, adherence to the use of it. Has, has the biz been shown to have any positive influence on the incidence of delirium? Terry, that's a sticky one. You know, I work with a lot of people in my group, and, and it's, it's a mixed bag, you know. And, and same thing with all 
the entire anesthesia community. I can tell you, like my case today, I'm the first one to tell, you know, my surgeon when he's barking at me, he's like, Is the, pa- the patient's waking up. I said, no, they're not. They're in birth suppression. <laughs> I have them on a pharmacologic coma right now. So, like, I can push them deeper. You know, I told him today, I said, um, you know, I don't know what else to do to help you. I mean, I'm already at 1.5 Mac bar. And they're like, what's that? I said, death. <laughs> <laughs> they're like oh i said so i'm i'm like hammering on this patient things aren't firing so but you know you know a lot of the studies systematic reviews meta-analyses they've looked at the issue and the results are largely inconclusive and i won't i'll just say brainwave monitoring devices because there are other ones out right, there right 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 you know and a question uh you know that we really have to answer at some point is you know does a low BIS number, whatever device that you're using, or birth suppression, serve as a marker of increased risk of postoperative delirium? Or is it an actual cause? You know, I, I don't think we really know for sure right now, and, and the data really doesn't give us strong sense one way or the other. You know, and, and I will add, even the cerebral oximetry is another one that, um, you know, yeah. is it comes into the play. So, Terry, what about regional anesthesia versus general anesthesia? And, and are there specific techniques that maybe we should incorporate into our practice that may protect our patients? You know, Gary, once again, uh, unfortunately, we really don't have a lot of solid ground to stand on. Uh, and the studies that looked at incidents of delirium after general or interaxial anesthesia for major orthopedic surgeries really didn't show a big difference in, in the incidence of delirium, uh, irrespective of the type of anesthesia provided to the patient. You know, and I recall when I was in the military at one particular hospital, the hallway from the operating room to the recovery room went right through the family waiting area. And, uh, you know, it was it was gratifying to take a patient who was elderly and had a perhaps an open hip done uh, under spinal or epidural anesthesia to be awake and alert and comfortable and the families could say hi and everybody like that. But, you know, apparently that didn't do any good, <laughs> which is kind of disappointing, I guess. Well, you know, the folks out at the University of California in San Francisco have, um, they've made some recommendations for patient care that, you know, seem to make some sense to me. Um, they recommend using propofol infusions intraoperatively because patients seem to wake up with propofol more alert and clear-headed than if they're exposed to volatile inhalation agents. And they recommend using drugs like a prepotent for patients at increased risk of PONV. Now, uh, for postoperative nausea and vomiting rescue doses, um, you know, one dose of ondansetron, uh, four milligrams every six hours, or, you know, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, you know, a half to one milligram of heliparadol. <laughs> Boy, those are the chemical cuffs. <laughs> but a great antiemetic uh, every one time, every six hours, uh, one time uh, metoclopramide, five milligrams. Again, recognizing that as a, a centrally acting dopaminergic antagonist, mm. uh, metoclopramide can cause some problems with uh, folks that might have some Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Uh, so they recommend using dexmedetinomidine. Uh, I can't say that, say that three times really fast. Or how about Presidex? Uh, because it seems to promote, uh, you know, at least on EEG evidence, what looks like natural sleep uh, and may reduce the risk of delirium postoperatively compared to propofol sedation during orthopedic surgery. And again, you know, not to be repetitious, but they hardly recommend avoiding benzodiazepines uh, and, and opioids whenever possible. And uh, so, hey, Gary, can you tie a ribbon around this and, and t- take us home? <laughs> Absolutely, Terry. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've talked about a lot of issues today surrounding the identification of patients who are at risk for experiencing delirium. Now, we've talked about the presentation of delirium, its objective and subjective features, and how often it occurs, and the strain of delirium place on the healthcare system, both physically and financially. Patients who experience delirium clearly have worse outcomes, as we've described in this podcast, and are at risk for post-operative cognitive decline and placement in long-term care facilities. You know, we've discussed the characteristics that increase the risk of delirium and even touch bases on some of the biochemical signatures that might suggest increased risk of delirium in vulnerable patient populations. We know that the severity of the of their disease, patient's disease, the number and the severity of their comorbidities and preoperative histories of alcohol, bummer, and drug <laughs> abuse. All Doesn't in, seem fair. It's not fair. <laughs> Red wine's not included. No, I'm just kidding. Correct. <laughs> but, you know, these, these agents do all increase the risk of postoperative delirium. And not surprisingly, surgical procedures and the length and that is a big one. Length of surgery yep. do seem to have an influence. Obviously, we've discussed in this podcast that uh, cardiac surgery patients seem to be at the highest risk. Intraoperatively, we believe we have an opportunity to reduce patient risk by limiting elderly patients' exposure to potentially harmful medications as identified by the Beers criteria. You know, and the Beers criteria also guide us further along the path of providing good postoperative care as well. And certainly on the nursing floors and that Vegas ICU units that are constantly <laughs> dinging, we must be mindful that patients need to have good restful sleep and that we're not waking them up during their sleep <laughs> to have sleeping medications. <laughs> and, you know, just good analgesia and pain management, you know, that's prudent. Um, they should be well fed and hydrated and naturally Early ambulation or mobility, getting up, walking around is always good for every surgical patient. Doggone right. Hey, good job putting a ribbon around that for us, Gary. <laughs> Very, I, I would expect no less, really. Yes. Well, it, so, was, hey, a, listen. it, it was a Windsor's knot on that bow, so I'll have you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, I, I, real quick story, then I'll, <laughs> I'll let these poor folks go. Um, I and uh, Doug Gertrow, I apologize, Doug, for telling stories <laughs> on you. Uh, Doug Gertrow and I flew from uh, AAA Medical Center to uh, Atlanta, Georgia overnight for an annual meeting, in an annual meeting, and uh, didn't sleep all night, went to the meetings the next day, and <laughs> went to bed that night, and just had the worst night's sleep. And I got up the next day, and I said to Doug, I said, did you sleep last night? He's not awake. <laughs> We've been up for about 36 hours and I got dressed and I would put a tie around my neck and I could not for the life of me <laughs> tie it. I could not tie my tie. So anyway, just crazy. Well, anyway, thank you listeners for joining us today on this podcast where we discuss delirium and some of its most um, disturbing 
implications. We appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget to spread the word about anesthesia, alchemy, Gary and Terry unplugged, and maybe sometimes a little unhinged because <laughs> <laughs> we are having fun. Uh, I guess that means we don't use any electrified musical instruments on the podcast. Uh, be sure to give us some feedback. Let us know about subjects you might want to hear about in the future. We're always glad to talk, as you probably hear. And as we always say, I never met a microphone I didn't like. <laughs> All right, Gary. Good job. Awesome. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the podcast. And again, uh, please share the word and share our podcast around. We really appreciate it. And as Terry said, please give us some feedback, some likes, and if you must, dislikes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we prefer the what? likes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a wrap. All we'll right. see you at the next podcast. Take care, uh, everyone. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- 304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. 
You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.